first of all, I don't think anybody is the face of the franchise. Right. Uh, the logo is the face of the franchise, and you know, I'll repeat that as many times as someone asks me that. Ah, yes, classic Lou Lamorello. But he sure paid Matthew Barzal like the face of the franchise, didn't he? Over $9 million a season for a guy who's been a point-to-game player once in his career. Was it too much? Well, Cheryl Pounder and Pierre Lebron are going to check in to discuss that and much, much more today on Got Your Back NHL Edition. Thank you so much for downloading and tuning in, folks, to Got Your Back, Lebron and Rashog, proudly brought to you by Cross Country Canada Supplies and Rentals. You know, when it comes to the construction industry, there is nothing that Cross Country Canada can't handle. Companies wanting to build a road, they've got everything you need from the survey equipment to plan it out, the equipment to haul and move dirt, even the material you lay down to stabilize the terrain. You can get all of it at Cross Country Canada. They even have all the safety gear for the workers, things like road markers, flagging, two-way radios, even custom make all the signage that is needed. Basically, with Cross Country Canada, if they don't rent it or sell it, you do not need it. Truly, a Canadian company, Cross Country Canada Supplies and Rentals, are our title sponsor. Welcome to episode two of Got Your Back, LeBron and Rashad. Folks, lots ahead on the show today. We'll check in with Scott Burnside with another edition of Straight to the Point. We will have a quandary that we threw out to you on Twitter, an interesting one involving hotel soaps. You have a right to just take them. We're going to dive deeper into that. Uh, we're going to go round the horn in our breakdown. NHL news and notes, including that Barzell contract. We'll talk a little bit about Shane Wright and Uri Slavkovsky. See how they're doing in their respective camps. Uh, but before we get to Pierre and to Cheryl Pounder, of course, there were some meetings yesterday. Once again, uh, Hockey Canada interim chair Andrea Skinner and former chair Michael Brindamore um, once again, we're front and center with the Canadian Heritage Committee answering questions. Uh, it was an interesting day. Uh, Rick Westhead has been front and center in reporting on this entire uh, story, and uh, we took a few minutes to check in uh, with TSN's Rick Westhead. Rick, I know it's been a busy time. I appreciate you taking uh, a few minutes to catch up with us here. Uh, we'll get to the meetings yesterday, but first there was some breaking news out of Quebec this morning uh, as a result of yesterday's meetings, uh, some reporting through the CBC. Can you bring us up to speed on the latest? Yeah, for sure. And this has been simmering for a bit, even with within Quebec. Uh, after the parliamentary hearings on Tuesday, Hockey, Canada, Hockey Quebec last night held a vote of non-confidence, uh, CBC is reporting, and has decided that it no longer, as a federation, has the confidence in Hockey Canada and has decided to sever ties to the, to the national organization. This has been brewing for a while. When I was in Edmonton uh, this summer for the World Juniors, you know, I, I was talking with officials from Hockey Quebec who were trying to figure out what the road was going to look like that they were going to go down, but they were not happy with how Hockey Canada had handled things even to that point before the hearings this week. Yeah, and and in the reporting here, it says to effectively change the culture of hockey with the structure in place. Um, that wording seems to me to allude to, to leadership. Is that the structure that you think uh, is at issue here? I think it's a good assumption. And, you know, Hockey Canada's leadership that is the front and center topic, you know, now it's it's so interesting how over the last months, you know, this discussion, this reporting has kind of um, evolved from looking specifically at allegations around um, an alleged sexual assault in 2018, you know, that purportedly involved players, uh, former Canadian Hockey League players who were members of Canada's World Juniors team. But after those allegations, which have still not been proven in court, uh, you know, as media and parliamentary uh, members started to dig deeper, questions were raised about, well, how did they handle this? And I think there were just a, for people who haven't followed along too closely, there were some real shocking moments along the way. We heard in June, for instance, that when Hockey Canada commissioned a Toronto law firm to do an investigation, all the interviews that this uh, law firm did were voluntary. And 10 players on the team, that was it. 10 players agreed to be interviewed by Hockey Canada. And, uh, you know, and if they, in the ones that refused, there were no consequences. We also learned, you know, Hockey Canada said, listen, those, the woman in this case did not want to proceed with, with, you know, with this. She didn't, she wanted this dropped. And her lawyer later said, that's not true. That she, in the days after this alleged incident, 
went to police in London, did a rape kit, went, gave them the clothes she was wearing, showed them pages and pages of text messages and photos. So there has been a, it's, it's been really interesting to kind of watch the way the National Federation has responded. And, you know, some of the bombshells that we've learned as well about not just one, but two funds that have been uh, managed uh, to try to, you know, pay out claims that are related to sexual assault allegations. One of those funds has never been drawn on or, or used to this point, but the other fund, the National Equity Fund has. And I think what, you know, from the feedback I get from people, Ryan, what's most alarming about this, it's a question of transparency. People right. who have these claims, it's good that they are settled. It's good that they are looked after. But minor hockey parents across Canada deserve to know where the money is going that they're paying every year. So with the hearings that happened yesterday with the interim chair, uh, Andrea Skinner, the former chair, Michael Brindamore, it's the second set of hearings that we've heard. Um, it seemed they took on a bit of a different tone, Rick. Uh, you know, Hockey Canada maybe bringing more of a defensive posture into this set of meetings. What was your sense of the tone of things yesterday? Yeah, that, that's a good observation. I think actually Hockey Canada's public messaging has done a 180 over the last month. Like if you remember, wasn't that long ago that Hockey Canada was very conciliatory and saying, uh, you know, conceding that there is has been a toxic culture in the sport, admitting that the public's trust has been broken and saying that it's committed to trying to do better. Those days seems like ages ago now. Now what we hear from Hockey Canada is that, you know, they're being unfairly targeted with criticism in the media. Uh, that people are not focusing enough on the good deeds that the Federation is doing and that status quo is needed, that we need to have, you know, the current leadership in place. As Andrea Skinner put it, um, if there was a complete purge of the top leaders at Hockey Canada, she said yesterday that would be negative for boys and girls across Canada. And how would the lights stay on in hockey rinks across the country? Yeah, that was definitely one of those statements that caught headlines. Another one was asked to grade Scott Smith's performance. She gave him an A um, in a time and place where there was a lot of calls for change um, at the top. Uh, there was some development in terms of, um, you know, an independent audit that's going to be expanded. Just take us through what the news was on the independent audit front yesterday. Sure. Well, we, we already knew that there was going to be an audit to explore whether government money was used to pay out the settlement in this lawsuit connected to the 2018 incident, right? This this woman, just again to recap, earlier this spring, a woman who uh, was allegedly assaulted back in 2018 filed a lawsuit against Hockey Canada for just over $3.5 million. And that lawsuit was settled very quickly in a, in a span of weeks. Um, so the government was already trying to look to find out whether public money was used in that payout. What our reporting has shown more recently is, you know, there are questions about how Hockey Canada's board has been spending the Federation's money. Um, I talked and a member of parliament talked to a former board member who talked about how championship rings when, you know, the women's national team, world juniors teams win championships. Uh, that, that that rings, not for players, but for board members, uh, are bought at a price of over $3,000 a piece. There have been questions about how much money they're spending on dinners, how much money they're spending on hotel presidential suites. We had confirmation on Tuesday from Michael Brindamore that, you know, this money has been spent on dinners. You know, he, he, he said, yeah, well, if we did this, it was probably for a very special event. Mm -hmm. And he also confirmed the price tag for championship rings. So what the government agreed to do after the hearings on Tuesday was a more exhaustive and thorough audit. Uh, an NDP member of parliament named Peter Julian has been pressing for this for weeks. And yesterday, the, the government actually agreed on that. So what this means is that they will be digging into every receipt that's been submitted for an expense, every dinner, every hotel, back to 2016. Right. Uh, there's a, a management company in Gatineau, Quebec called Samson and Associates. They're already doing, you know, the kind of surface level audit to see about settlement funds. Uh, you'd expect, just so you're not, not avoiding duplication, that the government would ask them to do the, uh, you know, the more extensive deep dive as well. And again, the, the timing on this, they believe that the both audits will be done sometime this fall. Uh, next steps. Bob Nicholson is going to be called. He'll be the next to answer questions. Uh, 
what uh, what areas do you think they'll dig into with Nicholson and and what do you think the tone will be of that next set of uh, questions? Well, I haven't had a really good um, track record of predicting what the tone will be in advance. I thought yeah. that Tuesday, I thought Ryan that Tuesday's hearing was going to be cordial, like friendly, even. You know, I, I was not expecting that we'd see. Rachel Thomas, a conservative member of parliament who's, you know, hasn't been front and center in these hearings. She was literally yelling at Andrea Skinner yesterday, asking how one could expect that if you have the status quo, that somehow magically there's going to be change, appreciable change. Um, I think there's going to be questions for Bob Nicholson about how this fund was started, about, you know, there's so many questions we don't have answers to yet. Sheldon Kennedy uh, uh, is obviously a name that Canadians know uh, as an abuse survivor of Graham James. And I honestly knew his story kind of surface level. I read his book again uh, recently. The police believe that Graham James has more than 150 victims. I only know of three of those who have been public, right? We know that Sheldon Kennedy has, mm -hmm. Theron Fleury has, Greg O'Hooley, uh, a lawyer, has also been public as a survivor of Graham James. That leaves still almost 150. So there's going to be a lot of questions, I think, for Nicholson about what are the prospects for the other victims coming forward? Um, how many settlements have been, have been reached? How Hockey Canada historically has investigated these? Has the Federation investigated them themselves? How many complaints have actually been found credible enough to actually dig deep into versus those that they just haven't investigated at all? And I wonder if he's also going to be asked about what's happening at the provincial level. How many complaints are going to Hockey uh, Alberta? How many to the Ontario Hockey Federation? How many have gone to Hockey Quebec? And what has been the outcome of all of those complaints as well? It's been some time since Nicholson uh, was part of Hockey Canada, but certainly through the early 2000s when a lot of this stuff was established, uh, he was part of it. So we will see what that next set of hearings uh, brings to bear. Rick, continued good work on this file. Thank you, Ryan. And time to say good morning to our good friend Pierre Lebrun and first time on Got Your Back NHL edition, Cheryl Pounder. Poundy, how are you? I'm good. I am, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, my kids are at school, so this is a good thing. And <laughs> I'll be back in the rink tonight running hockey practice. So the usual, it's all hockey. And I, I like that jersey you got going on there, Pierre. My husband would oh, love it. Oh my goodness. <laughs> You know what? You know what? It's uh, it's now become so much part of my identity that. Uh, do you own anything else? I double down. Like, do you own any other casual clothes that do not have that emblem on it? it it's about a fifty percent share <laughs> in my closet. Yeah, it's uh, it's what my kids buy me all the time. So uh, you know, it's it's not been a, a fun team to cheer for for about twenty five oh, years. Oh man! And now you know, whatever. I'm not hiding. Whatever. Me. Whatever. Oh my gosh. I'm going to have to call my husband down here so we can have a look at it because uh, he's a huge fan and he's been is going he... through the same pain that you've been going through. Oh, so he's a Cowboys fan too. He is. Oh, he's a really? Huge Cowboy fan. So we stay out of uh, the, the football room when it comes time because we usually know how it's going to end. Sorry, Pierre. So, uh, you know, we all get away and we get out of the room. <laughs> I, I mean, the good thing is I, I am mentally prepared for it every January, so it's not a shock to me. Even yeah, are you painful. are you grumpy after a loss, Pierre? Like, what does it look like for you? How long does it last? You know, there have been. It depends on the type of year, the type of loss that it is. I honestly, truly, and and people who know me in my social circle know that I said this before last year's loss to San Francisco. I, I, I thought they were going to lose a close game, and that's exactly what happened. I got, and part of that is that I didn't think the 49ers should be in a walk-hour game on the road. I thought they were a better program than that. Just so happens they got it together at the end. So I was ready oh, for that one, happened. but there are other years. There are other years you're where it just it all down. right out. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. you're breaking it all down. NFL analyst Pierre LeBron, I love it, and longtime beleaguered Cowboys fan. Uh, so we'll, we're going to go around the horn uh, on NHL news in a couple of minutes here. Uh, I wanted to just touch on the, the meetings yesterday uh, involving Hockey Canada. To me, they took on a much different tone than the first set of meetings. It seemed a uh, much more defiant tone, I think, from Hockey Canada. I think there was a strategy session they had, and they changed tactics a little bit. And I think as a result of that, there were some things that were said that made headlines are the lights going to stay on? Uh, giving Smot Scott Smith 
uh, an A grade for his performance in the position. There were some headlines made that I think probably turned this thing even further in the wrong direction um, from a PR standpoint for Hockey Canada. Cheryl, obviously you have very close um, ties with Hockey Canada, years and years uh, competing for them. I guess I'll start with you and just how uh, this second set of meetings and this whole story, frankly, is is hitting you. You had some very moving words at the start of the World Junior Hockey Championship, and we appreciated you sharing then. Uh, fast forward a month or two, and where's your head at on all of this? Yeah, and it's 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 so difficult, right, guys? Right? It's it's just the constant um, the constant uh, talk around what's going on, and, and to be truthful. I kind of pulled back a little bit in terms of, of watching. Of course, I'm not in that courtroom and really just took a different approach in terms of, listen, I work with youth, the youth. I work with multiple teams, young women that play the game that we love. And so what can we do? What can I do? What can the staff do to foster an environment that gets away from negativity. And so how do we help these young athletes grow, be confident, be good citizens in society? So what it's done for me is it's it's forced me to say, what can I do to through this to ensure that I'm doing my part as an educator or as a coach within the room? And so it's opened up a lot of discussion. I, I'm not going to lie within staff or within the room about, you know, whether it's discrimination, whether it's how we react to one another, um, what's accepted, what's tolerated, what's not. And it, it opens up that dialogue and conversation to these young women to feel comfortable to talk about, um, to, to, to own up to what's going on within a room and really just giving them a voice in this and saying, you know, you love the sport. We love the sport. We know all the great memories that I've gotten from it. I know, you know, they're getting from it. Uh, and then there's also times when, when there are negative things that happen and that we have to find a way to curb. And so I think it's been pretty consistent now with all of this messaging that's going on that people have had enough. People want change, want um, engagement, change that we can see, actionable change. And so where does it start? And so I just trying to be a player in that. Um, and because I feel like yeah. that right now is, is the impact that I can have within that group. Yeah, a couple of things for me, uh, certainly on a personal level, Cheryl's similar reaction for me in terms of the kind of conversations that we've had in our household, my wife and I, throughout the summer, throughout the off season, leading into this hockey season about hockey culture. And and also, again, on a personal level, um, I've decided to spend more time in my kids' hockey lives. I have three kids who play rep hockey. I'm now on the bench uh, for one of my daughter's teams. And that's important to me because I think hockey parents have a big role in trying to get hockey culture in a better place. Huge role. And so I'm, I'm, I feel I have a part in that. Um, on the more you know, uh, on the scale of what Ryan was talking about and what happened yesterday with the hearings, regardless of, of where you are and where this should all go. And to me, again, the most important thing is that Hockey Canada is in a place at the end of all this, at the end of this reckoning, that there are processes in place that make yeah. sure that this type of thing is handled in a completely different way and in a more transparent way moving forward. I think everyone can agree on that. Yeah. But in the here and now... There's no question that wherever you stand on Hot Canada leadership, the public has lost confidence. I, I mean, it felt like one of the last straws to me yesterday and seeing those interactions. And, you know, I don't know how this doesn't end with, uh, frankly, a change of leadership, but, you know, we'll see where it goes. Man, I love and we'll have lots that. more. Yeah. Sorry, no, Cheryl. I was going to say transparency and authenticity, I think, are things, two words that really resonate right now. And when you get trust within relationships, it's it's because of transparency and authenticity. And I think you're you're bang on there, Pierre, with that. And and for myself, you knew you mentioned being on the bench. I think it's it's a real time for reflection. And if we can all sort of just introspect and go there to reflection and say, you know, when I'm on that bench, how am I speaking to the kids or or or, you know, when is it time to be accountable and when is it time? And so learning from a younger age and learning as an adult, 
learning as an adult. Um, and so I think there's a piece and an element here of, of reflection for, for everyone within the game um, and, and making sure that they're, they're transparent and authentic as they can be. And we all learn as we go. Absolutely. And we'll have more on this a little bit later on in the podcast. Scott Burnside is going to check in in our straight to the point segment uh, with an editorial on what he saw with the meetings yesterday. Okay, let's get to the National Hockey League specifically and start to break things down. This is the breakdown brought to you by Pro Hockey Life. And they are wanting to remind you that their expert pro shop technicians can provide you with a wide variety of of skate sharpening and profile options to best suit your skating style. you got to have those skates done right between their professional by-hand sharpening and the Sparks automatic sharpening machines. Uh, they make sure you walk out with the perfect edge on your blades. Uh, go check it out for your tune-up, your repair, your skate stretch. They can replace your rivets, coppers, eyelets, holders, or steel. Straighten your steel. They even do work on inline skates. Poundy, you know you got to have the blades exactly how you want the blades. Oh, you got to have them exactly the way you want them. You know, I'm still using my ancient, I think my Vapor 10s from way back in the day. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I can actually comment on this. I was the one that you know, never really taped my stick because I never had the puck on it. But the skating and the edge work, absolutely. It's it's critical. And one of my coaches the other day lost. We, we got to talk to them because got his blade cut in half and they couldn't replace it. They couldn't find a yeah, blade to too match ancient. the age of the actual skate. So Pierre, I what are you coaching my in? age. Pierre, what are you coaching in, buddy? Uh, I just, I got some bars a couple of years ago. I forget which brand exactly, yeah. you know, but, but it's funny hearing Cheryl talk. I keep thinking that one of my weaknesses as a hockey parent is that I keep forgetting, you know, how often I need to get my kids skate sharpened. So I'm always like, how, huh? how, how many sessions has it been again? And I yeah. grab the skate and I feel it with my thumb. And it's like, I always feel like I'm two or three sessions behind. Uh, get into uh, pro hockey life, buddy. Me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Get into pro hockey life. They'll keep I'm you square. I'm way more than two to three behind. I'm telling you, they start <laughs> sliding on the ice, and I'm just going, what's wrong with you? And that's where I got to yeah. really reflect and not yell, right? And they're, uh, they're right. flying everywhere. The, the next thing you know, you look, have a look down, there's a chunk out of the steel, and you're like, yeah, okay, that's oh, why. Like, just like bend your knees, dig in a little more. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, pro hockey life can fix all those problems for you, Poundy, no question. Okay, the news of the day yesterday uh, Matthew Barzal, brand new contract with the New York Islanders. Eight years, $73.2 million, $9.15 million on the cap, uh, given to Barzal by Lou Lamorello. He's 26 next year, 34 when the deal ends. He had 15 goals last year. He's got two power play goals in the last couple of seasons. Uh, he scored on a 20 goal pace twice in his career. This feels like a lot of money for a guy who's really, really good, but not necessarily high, high end superstar status. Feels like an overpay to me. Just right, guys, or overpay, Poundy? I'm going overpay here. And, you know, this they're setting an internal cap for sure. Lou Lamorella was a little bit surprising by me for me. Uh, given Lou and, um, you know, Matt Barzell. I mean, we know what he did in his, his Calder year. You know, he came in, I think he had something like 59 points. And I think that was the trajectory that they thought he was going to be on. Um, but, you know, he, we haven't seen that from him. But obviously they do believe that there's more in there. Uh, they believe he's the future of this franchise. Obviously they think that, you know, he, he's going to lead them in terms of their forward group. So they're sending a big message here. I mean, Anders Lee's not making that much. You know, you talk about, uh, young guys like Wallstrom coming up. I mean, they, they clearly think he's one of their, or is their guy up front and you know, the skill set that he has, but in terms of delivery, it, you know, we haven't seen that same breakout season since we've seen since his rookie year. So I, I think it's an overpay. 85 points that rookie year, by the way, Pierre. Yeah. Yeah. It, it certainly might be. I'll just play devil's advocate to, to balance out the conversation here. <laughs> A couple of things to look at. Uh, one is that it, it's, it's easy to feel overpay and then I sit back and I look at where and I was just talking to a GM about this this morning in fact about where the cap we think is headed over the next couple of years it's going to stay stable for another year just go up a million but then it's going to jump in 24 and 25 yeah. and so teams and agents are trying teams in particular are really trying to get ahead of what sounds like it's going to be a pretty dramatic bump and therefore a bump in salaries and so remember this is this this is a max term extension so the idea from the Islanders' point of view, and it could be 
proven wrong to your point, both of you, but is that by, by midway through this deal, if Barzal gets back to where they believe his offensive uh, output should be, it might actually be quite fine. But how do you know that? Number two is, you know, the Islanders have played a certain style. Now we'll see this year, different head coach, but you know, uh, the Islanders have been a pretty defensive oriented team, yeah. which I think a lot of people feel has stifled some of Barzell's creativity and potential offensive output. And I think that played into this too. I can tell you that some of the uh, comparisons that were used in the negotiation from Barzell's camp were, were that of Matthew Kachuk and Braden Point uh, in terms of their contracts, uh, et cetera. So from that perspective, the, the deal certainly lines up. But yeah, I agree with you guys that he needs to be better offensively for this deal to make sense. No <laughs> well, yeah, I think with, with his in around the 60-point mark and around the past, you know, a couple seasons, you said men, you mentioned 85 in his Calder season. I think they yeah, were projected 59, that 59, 59 and 73, 73 last year. Yeah. yeah. So it's 59 and 73. I mean, yeah, there's some injuries there and what have you. But when I think he was projecting coming off that Calder year, as you mentioned, with 85 points, that, you know, this guy is going to be a 100-point player. And so they obviously still think that he has that capability. Um, obviously, his hands are, are unique. He's a puck handler. Sometimes I think he needs to distribute a little bit earlier. But one of the things that I've noticed is that, as you mentioned, with the coaching change, I'm interested to see how much they get away from necessarily chip and chase and, and allow a guy like Barzell to really open up his world when he hits in, when he hits the playground, his playground into through the offensive zone. Yeah, I, I covered Barzal at a world championship a number of years ago and he was first bursting onto the scene. And I remember watching him even in practice and thinking, oh my goodness, these puck skills yes, are that's... unbelievable. His ability to grab that thing and handle it and make moves on the fly. Um, definitely sense some frustration about distributing it enough, yes, <laughs> moving it around say, enough. Yes. Yeah. Those were in the early days of his career. And, and listen, Lou Lamorello even talked yesterday about how he's made improvements in his defensive game, but yeah. there's still a ways to go in that. Um, and that will always be a work in progress. Let's hear, uh, <laughs> from Lou. Yeah. Sorry, Pierre. I was just going to say quickly, also as part of the background in this negotiation, even though Lou Lamorello might, might perhaps downplay this. The, the Islanders really, you know, were hit hard when they lost John Tavares, but didn't just lose him, but they lost him for nothing yeah. and, and had a chance for a year yes. to deal with this contract and perhaps trade him or not trade him. And so, you know, how much of that is baked into the decision to be this aggressive and making sure this time they get Barzell signed? And they another thing to keep in mind, they didn't come up with a lot in free agency this year. I mean, Romanov wow. was basically their main addition. There were no significant additions to add help for Barzal on the offensive front. So, But uh, classic Lou Lamorello when asked about paying a guy to be the face of the franchise. First of all, I don't think anybody is the face of the franchise. Right. Uh, the logo is the face of the franchise. And, you know, I'll repeat that as many times as someone asked me that. Uh, but Matt, I'm a fan because Matt has the ability to raise his game and to be a special player. And now with this contract and our faith in him, uh, puts that responsibility on him. Uh, we're trusting that now it's up to him also to respond to that. So uh, Barzal did a media availability yesterday as well. I thought it was interesting. He was really honest about the difference between playing out your contract year and having to sort of show them in your contract year versus getting the deal done ahead of time and the different headspace that you end up in, guys, when you get it done a year out. You know, anytime you can go out that, that year and uh, want to prove yourself and to sign that big deal, but it's a lot of individualistic thoughts uh, throughout the year. You're playing mostly for yourself, so glad I can get this done and play for, play for the team and um, just commit to winning. Some really honest comments there from Barzal, Cheryl. What do you make of it? Well, I, you know, I think this is a guy that wants to be a, a, on the island, you know, and, and that's sending a huge message, not just to the team, but to the fan base, to everyone that he, he's bought in. He wants to be there. He's talked about how much he loves it. So I think I think that's critical. I think he's work, willing to work on his game. I think he has respect for Lou and, and vice versa. But it is interesting. You know, there's work, work to be done there in terms of generating the offense. You talked about. Uh, his two-way game needing, you know, improving, but his work off of the off of the puck, I think, which is the big thing right there, and of course the distribution, which I think Timmy Stutzler needs to work on too. But we don't want to talk about him. <laughs> well, um, but you know, I, I think it's I, it's great. It's great for the island. The island they did, you know, again the acquisitions in the offseason haven't. You know, everyone's been talking about what's going on. Are we are we getting any other pieces? So they've really uh, stated their claim here, and they've said this is where the direction we're going, and with Barzell.
And every player that's in this situation is different. Uh, you see it over yeah. the years. There are some players have a comfort level in, in having a show-me year and strengthening their UFA case. Um, and other players, um, you know, like the, the relief of, of getting that year out of the way and signing ahead of time. You know, I think in baseball, Aaron Judge is showing us how he feels about no. playing out his contract. How about that? Bet on yourself. Right. What was it? I wrote it down. What was the amount that he turned down? Uh, turned down a seven-year, $213 million deal. Right. A couple hundred mil, right? Yeah. And uh, I think he made a wise choice. But, you know, going back to the Tavares thing, which I, I'm sure Islanders fans wish I would let go, but I remember being um, – you know, in Long Island, the year that Tavares was playing out his his, his final year and all the hoopla that was around oh, him, and yeah. it was it was crazy. And of I course, was in some of those media scrums too. Right, it was nonstop for a season. And my point is, you know, Barzal was sitting a couple of stalls down from that, you know, from yeah. from Tavares, and was a yeah. witness to everything that played out that year. And, and I wonder if he just said, you know what, that's not for me. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want to go through that. And, um, you know, Steven Stamkos is, is another one that we all covered and, and the angst and the emotion and actually having UFA presentations from a number of teams, but then deciding to go back to Tampa. That was a crazy week in the life yeah. of Steven Stamkos. And <laughs> so I think some players are like, you know what? I like it here. This is a really good contract. I'm just going to sign. They well, did throw $9.15 million well, dollars in front of it. That might have had something. <laughs> yep, I'll do that one. It. You know, $9 million. I can handle that. I mean, $15 million a month playing for the National uh, Hey, know? before so, before we yeah. move on to Jacob Chikrin, uh, what would you guys have done with the home run ball? The fellow that caught it there, uh, Corey Ewens what is, was his name. He was escorted out of the stadium, out of the ballpark. <laughs> Apparently, he's already got offers in the $2 million range. I'll go first. Oh. I am selling that thing all day long. Highest bidder, pay me and move along. I have no need to put that thing in a glass case in my basement. I'm selling it. Selling it all day long. I am so with you, right? We got kids we got to put through school. Well, they can kind of work themselves too, but you know, we you know want to be able to help a little bit. I'm Pierre, how about you? Long. You're a bit of a historian, Pierre. Are you thinking about it? Hey. Yeah, I, I might have kept it for a while, but although I probably would have succumbed to the pressure from the Yankees. But does the volume uh, go? Does, does the value go up or down if you wait longer? Like a year later, is it right. worth more or not as much? Yeah, I, what I if someone hits sixty three next year? Yeah, there is yeah. that. Well, that's a good point by you. Sell it while it's at its most value. If someone gets off to a hot start next year, or if he gets off to a hot start next year. Uh, I'm selling that thing all day long. Uh, Pierre, what's – yeah, no, for sure. Pierre, what's the latest on Jacob Chikrin? You know, I, I think the sense that I got looking into it the last couple of days is that, is that, for one, in case people were wondering, I don't believe the price has gone down from the Arizona Coyotes yeah. for Jacob Chikrin, which has really been the number one reason why he hasn't been traded yet since being on the market for a year. But the Coyotes, I'm told, from, a, from other rival front offices, are still looking for two first-round picks – as part of the package and plus a third asset, which is either a young player or, or a prospect. It's a high price, but as someone said to me, you know, you look at the Brandon, the Brandon Hagel trade last year and what Tampa paid, you know, Chikrin's on a cheap deal as a top four defenseman. A couple of years ago, you saw his offensive output. So, so the Coyotes are value him quite high. The other thing involved here is that I also think that some of the teams that remain interested that have kept in touch with Arizona also probably want to see him come back and play some games for the Coyotes. Right. Remember, he, yeah. he's yeah. been on the man. He had the ankle, which is 100% now, we're told. Also had the wrist surgery. Uh, yeah. He got the same doctor as Austin Matthews uh, do the wrist. And uh, he's on the men from that. And it sounds like late October for a potential return for him. And I kind of feel like maybe that is also a factor in why it hasn't happened yet. But, you know, listen, he's come out publicly and talked about the fact that he would welcome a deal. The Coyotes uh, are intent on dealing him, but, you know, sit back and look at what Bill Armstrong has done in his short time as Coyotes GM. You may remember this, uh, Ryan, with your coverage of the Oilers, but, you know, he held on to Darcy Kemper probably a year longer than a lot of people thought Darcy Kemper would be in Arizona. Yeah, for and, sure. And part Oilers of that thought was, they were going to get him. Yeah. And part of that was that he was asking for a lot for Darcy Kemper and teams are like, come on. Well, guess what happened on July 28th, 2021? Yep. 
The Colorado Avalanche failed to re-sign Grubauer. They struck out on other UFA goalies, and the clock struck, and they were like, we need a goalie. We're trying to win a cup here. And they paid a crazy price for Darcy Kemper. You know what? They'd do it again because they ended up winning the cup 12 months later. But the point being is that I always believe in looking at how a GM handle other situations. I think Bill Armstrong is willing to be patient here and wait till someone gets at least close to his price. Has the legend of Jacob Chikrin grown substantially with all this time he's spent at the top of trade bait boards? I mean, don't get me wrong. He's a, he's a good defenseman. 18 goals a couple of seasons ago. That's yeah. going to turn heads. Yeah, right. A bit of a down year last year, but it feels like that legend has really grown, Cheryl, in the time that, that he's been on this trade bait board. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we were, we were, we've been, you know, in those shows and just kind of watching and waiting and, and, and saying, oh, who's he going to? The senator's going to grab him. Is this the oiler? Like, and just keep continually going. And so I absolutely think that it's, it's growing uh, with, with every minute and um, is legend as well. But I mean, he's a 24 year old defender. I mean, he's, he's a big, he's a big guy, he's six two. you know, he's got a, a decent contract, but the, the asking price is going to be, be the big question. And, you know, who's, who has to tag along with it. I mean, if you're someone like the Ottawa Senators, you know, you don't want to give up a Shane Pinto or, you know, like there's a lot, what is the asking price? So I think that's a big one. But when you talk about defenders, I mean, they, you know, there's not a lot to go around and that's the big thing to be able to get a good quality top four defender who can play some tough minutes in his defensive end. He's got mobility. Uh, I can walk the line, you know, he's got that great shot. So I think there's a lot of stuff there as well. And, and if he has a more extensive forward group, let's be honest, what can he do from an offensive standpoint? So I think it's going to continue to move on here, but again, it's going to be patience uh, on behalf of Arizona or well, whether someone's just going to lose patience and give him the ass, but with the cap, you know, not a lot of teams are, are there and able to do it. Well, and that's why I think Ottawa and Columbus check off a lot of boxes for a number of reasons. A, they, there is a, a, you know, I think an obvious need on the blue line for both those organizations to add a piece like Jacob Chikrin. B, they yeah. have the cap room. Yeah. Uh, they have the wherewithal. They're both trying to advance their program now, right? Um, you know, Columbus signs Johnny Goudreau. They're not going to sit there and build for five years. They're They're trying to get better in a hurry. The Senators have obviously announced themselves as wanting to take that next step. They're loaded up front, but they have a hole or two in the blue line. So I think those two teams remain interested, is my understanding. I think they'll keep looking at it. I also think the LA Kings are kind of lurking without as much fanfare. And, and mm-hmm. you know, I think Rob Blake has checked in on uh, Jacob Chikrin a number of times. Good young decor out there yep. coming too. Yep. And the thing is, the Kings are loaded on the right, both at the yep. top and, 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 and coming through the pipeline, not as much on the left. So... It's always been, I think, a match that could make sense. But again, the price, you know, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. yeah for sure. Uh, and some reporting from Aaron Portsline out of Columbus, too, in this last week. Chikrin doesn't have the no trade. It's not like he can control where he goes. But Columbus mm-hmm. is not a team that wants to trade for players that don't necessarily want to be there, especially giving up a lot of assets. The initial sense on Chikrin, according to Portsline, was that Columbus wouldn't have necessarily been on his list after the offseason after getting Johnny Goodrow with the system that they're putting in place, Portsline reporting on some sourcing that Chikrin would, in fact, be open to uh, making a long-term home in Columbus. And that, of course, a consideration for the Blue Jackets with any trade that they make because they have that history of bringing guys in and then not being able to retain them. Every offseason, there's interesting storylines on young players. How are they going to do? Usually centered around the draft. So Uri Slavkovsky and Shane Wright. Let's check in and see how these guys are doing in preseason. From a points standpoint, it's been slow for both of them. Uh, Slavkovsky will go with first uh, in his four games, one assist. He played over 22 minutes in that game last night, so he's being pushed. Um, But, Pierre, what are you hearing out of Montreal on the early returns on Slavkovsky and the chances that he'll be able to stick around for opening night? You know, they gave him the big opportunity last night, right? Played on the line uh, with Suzuki and Caulfield. Um, it's going to be interesting to me. I, 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 I think Kent Hughes is quite serious when he's told a lot of us that they are willing to put him in Laval if they feel yeah. that's what's right for him. The comment that stands out for me from Kent Hughes on Slavkowski is that what they care about is that he is at the peak of his potential development in a number of years from now when they believe they will be competing and be a contender versus his contributions this year when they're rebuilding. 
yeah. you know, not a lot of GMs will come out and say that. Yeah, but the point being that that regardless of optics, because so few first overall picks, you know, don't start the year with their NHL team, the Habs aren't getting as caught up in that. Now, again, it may be that it makes sense for them to start with him an opening night roster and then yeah. look at his development and then make a call because he can go up and down between Laval and Montreal. Um, yeah. And I think there's a chance that what we actually see this year is a hybrid that way, that he yeah. spends time in both. And I, I would agree with you. And I think a lot depends on, I do think he'll, my gut is that he'll start the season with Montreal. And I had the opportunity to work the game the other day where he was playing um, versus Toronto. And again, you're almost waiting for something. And sometimes it's not just flash and dash with these guys and what he did at the Olympics or he's not on the international stage, but you know, you know, you're kind of waiting for him to do something. You don't really see him. And then all of a sudden there's a little bit of a spark. And so for me with his size, obviously the Montreal Canadiens can use that size up front in particular, if he's playing with a Caulfield or a Suzuki, but uh, the other side of it is one of the things that I thought a detail to his game that I thought he was pretty effective at that. I don't always think that, you know, we recognize in game is just the way he does shield and protect the puck. So most of his moves were pushing to the middle of the ice, using his leverage, using his size to be able to get a shot off. But mm-hmm. as the game went on, I thought he got better in particular in that game against the Leafs. And when he was getting better, what I meant, he wasn't afraid to drive the dot. It's almost like he got, you know what, I'm going to start attacking now. I'm not just going to sit. And he found his way to those spots. So, you know, this can be a product too of getting comfortable, um, playing with the regular players and starting to work your way up to speed and certainly takes time. But yeah, I'm with you up here. I, I think he'll start just being that that number one pick, um, you know, the perception around it. I think they'll give him an opportunity, but at the same time, you can't risk development. So if Laval's the place for him, I agree that it'll be a hybrid and it's a hybrid and it's going to be the right move because, you know, they need him to be a star in the game. They chose him to be that rare player. So he needs to be and they need to give him the opportunity. I mean, he's only 18 years of age. I wouldn't do it, guys. I wouldn't do it. Sorry. I, I, you know, the the risk reward. I would send him back unless it is absolute patently obvious that he's ready to step in and contribute. You start him in the National Hockey League and it doesn't go well. In the media frenzy that is Montreal, he's slow and doesn't do much in the first five games. Now you send him back and he's failed. Now you send him back and it hasn't gone well and he's dropped the ball and the number one pick wasn't able to cut it and he's failed. And it might not be that harsh. Why set him up that way? Make it very clear. We expect him to be here at some point this year, but we believe the best spot for him to start getting his game underneath him in North America is in the American Hockey League. They have this such a unique opportunity with a first-round pick not to have to choose between the NHL and junior, and you get one chance to make that decision in training camp. And that's the truth with this guy. Yeah, and, and you know, I've talked to a number of front offices this week about this. I mean – teams still feel they wish they had that HL option for, for their first round picks, yeah. which they don't have if he's a Canadian junior player. And, you know, I think back Ryan, just thinking of the Oilers to Ryan Nugent Hopkins and whether he was ready for his first NHL season physically. Yep. Yep. And, and but but the options are junior NHL, right? It's it's tough in that sense. And, and I think that's the correct mentality to have, Ryan. Like no question. Um, but when you're going to heading into opening night and want to start well, like is he good enough to be on the roster at this moment or what's in his best interest? And I think those are two very different questions and you have to be willing to be open and authentic about the development and where you see your team in a few years. And I, I can go back. I mean, yes, it's women's hockey. My start, I made the team when I was 17 years of age with the national team and yeah. I wasn't not ready. I was 17 years of age. I wasn't phys- physically mature enough. I didn't not, you know, recognize, you know, the pace of the game. And I, got cut the following year and I was crushed. My confidence was down. It took me years to get back because I wasn't ready to be there, even though my skill set would have said, oh yeah, she's she's good enough to be here. But from a standpoint of every other aspect, I was not ready. Um, and I was forced into that situation, of course, willingly at the time, because you anytime you want to be out with the big club, you want to be with the big club. Um, but at the end of the day, the best thing for my development would have been not to have been there at that time. Yeah. So because it would take me years to garner the confidence and get over it. And you know what it does internally to you as an athlete, too. I mean, people can say, oh, yeah, you know, you're a, you're a professional athlete. You don't think this way. Well, guess what? You know, it, it, it's not easy when there's a lot of pressure on you. Um, so so there's yeah. a couple of trains of thought here for sure. 
The decision-making process is different for Seattle and Shane Wright. They have that choice. They don't have that choice. Um, Pierre, what are you hearing about the likelihood that Shane Wright sticks around? Four games Mm -hmm. played, he's got an assist. He's got eight shots on net. But I think underwhelming, based on a lot of the reports I'm reading out of Seattle, what are you hearing? So it just uh, so happens that I chatted with Ron Francis, uh, the Kraken GM, yesterday. uh, Oh, perfect. Yeah. What are they going to do? For for a piece that's uh, coming out in the athletic. And and obviously, we talked about Shane Wright. Uh, I didn't specifically ask him about what he thought about his camp so far, but we talked about, you know, Shane Wright dropping the four and in many ways why Seattle and the patient approach of Ron Francis might turn out to be the perfect place for Shane Wright to, to start his career. And here's part of what Ron Francis said. I'm just reading the quote, but um, I'm really pleased w- with what we see. He thinks the game well. He sees the game at a high level. His hands are extremely quick. Uh, it's just going to take some time to understand the pace of the game, the flow of the game as he matures. So I said, well, is he starting the year in Seattle? And Ron Francis said, I would believe he's starting the season in Seattle. And then I went back and I said, well, is he playing the whole year in Seattle? And he said, I don't want to draw a line in the sand, but I would think he's with us for the year. It's just a matter of how things go and managing it, et cetera, et cetera. So not a 100% guarantee, but certainly leaning heavily in terms of that is the plan for Seattle. Man, I would be so careful with this. I would be so careful with this. And I've seen it up close here in Edmonton with a couple of number one picks that came in. Well, that's why I mentioned uh, Yakupov. I mean, Nugent Hopkins was in the Calder conversation his rookie year, so debatable whether he should have been there or not. But uh, they're so young. They're young down the middle. I mean, I was looking at their stat. They were just getting chewed up in the face-off circle. All their young centers were... Uh, you go into a situation where you're, you're forced to take on too much too soon, and I just I don't know how often yeah. have guys been hurt by going back to junior, Cheryl? Yeah, and it's 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 such a tough call. I'm with you, and I I mean even with Shane Wright, you know, the nuances of his game aren't flash either. So I think over the course of his years, you know, as he was projected as a number one, everyone expects to see these elite, elite skills, like these Connor Bedard sort of things. But that's that's not the case with him. I mean, he does everything really well. Um, but you're right. I mean, you think about the physical maturation that happens. I mean, the way you process the game, I think that's got to be the biggest thing for a young athlete, um, having the ability to process it quicker and slow the game down. And you just don't have that ability until you've actually played games. Um, and some are obviously, there are some athletes that can do it much quicker than others. But just honing those skills um, that elevate you and prepare you to hit that next step and when you don't get those pieces sometimes you can drop further so because it kills the confidence uh, and then you're getting away from your actual game so i think i think this you know you got to tread water with this one ryan you really do but it's tough again when you're sitting there and you're looking at a roster and you're saying yeah but is he good enough to be here at the moment um so so i think if you're at eight games if you're at eight games and he's not thriving send him down and And i'm talking thriving not looks like you might be okay this is the hole for me in 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 the way the system is set up. And and listen, GMs have talked about this for years with me that they wish there was a you know an exception an exception made for a, maybe is it a top ten pick? Is it a first round pick? Is it a top five pick? You know, GMs have talked about this forever. In the twenty eight years I've covered the NHL, this subject has come up a ton. Where could there be an exception that it, that the options aren't just Canadian junior NHL, but that you could send a, a kid to the AHL. But in Shane Wright's case, you know, he's played a couple of years in the Ontario Hockey League. So just to play devil's advocate again, yeah, how much more is he going to learn from going to junior? I mean, is the answer here, again, what I just talked well, about. Well, he ain't burning a year of entry level. Well, I, my point being, isn't the AHL maybe the best part, the best place for him, yeah. except he can't go there, I yeah. guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah, but junior leagues won't like that. They don't want to lose those high-end players when they have a chance to have them back. But uh, I get anyways, that. yeah, for sure. All right, great stuff, guys. That was the breakdown brought to you by Pro Hockey Life. How are you feeling, Calgary Flames and Ottawa Senators fans? You feeling like, I mean, I'm thinking about the Calgary Flames and their fans and their sweaters. I mean, I was in, the play, in there in the playoffs last year. It was nothing but Goudreau and Kachuk sweaters. You have an entire fan base that needs new sweaters. <laughs> And Pro Hockey Life is the place to go to get yourself outfitted with either a Florida Kachuk jersey or a Columbus Goudreau jersey. Does your allegiance go with the player 
or does it stay with my guess is they'll be buying Huberto and Kadri and Uyghur jerseys. But uh, fans, if you're looking to get yourself squared away with apparel for the upcoming year, go to Pro Hockey Life. Uh, okay, before we let you guys go, back by popular demand. I mean, I've just been inundated with requests. So you're going to do another quandary, right? We had such success with our quandary in our opening episode. So these are little things that happen along the way in life's journey that we just maybe don't always know the answer to. This is the quandary this week, and I put this one out on Twitter. Cheryl, Pierre, focus your brain on this quandary. Hotel soaps, shampoos, okay? When you stay at a hotel, is it okay for you to each day take the soaps, the little ones that are provided for you, and chuck them into your bag? They then get replenished the next day. And so you chuck them into your bag and then they get replenished the next day and you chuck them into your bag and then you take them home and then you have that neat little bowl at home where you've got all sorts, right? You're basically collecting. Is it okay to do that or not? I submit to you that it is criminal activity you are stealing. Well, you're, well, you're making way too much money then, Rye, because absolutely I steal every single time when I go to a hotel. I also, I'm going to add to it, I take the Keurigs, whether I use them or not. Um, <laughs> wow, that's next level right there. That, that is, is next, next level. level. We need to get this girl a raise. What's going on? <laughs> Um, is, is, is hey, that where it ends? That is expensive, man. You got to keep those uh, Whether you have the coffee or not. <laughs> I, I, I've never taken the soap home from a hotel, but I guess what I would say is the, the soap hotel price is baked into your hotel charge in the sense that it may be different for you guys, but I notice every time I use a soap in a shower at a hotel that the next day after my room was was clean there's a new soap waiting there they didn't just let the old one there so that i could use it during my stay which i think right. is very wasteful by the way but my point is that obviously that price of the soap on a daily basis is is baked into the economics okay so and what, what i haven't brought the soap home but i got no problem with it morally or ethically to your question of the I, con i don't do it all the time but if you really like the scents that are there why not take them and listen to this okay so let's because say you get in you're calling a game or you're at a game and you get in at you get in after the game. You don't even check into your hotel till after the game. So you get in at midnight and you leave at 8 a.m. and you paid full pop for that hotel. 300 bucks. Okay. okay. You you should be able to take the robe. Oh, poundy. Oh, poundy. <laughs> I'm you're kidding. Gonna be, I, I don't take the robe. You're okay? going to be on some secret <laughs> uh, uh, a list in the hotel yeah. community here soon oh, after watching this podcast. If, but if you're charged for a couple hundred bucks for a night and you get there at midnight and you leave at, you're flying yeah. out, you leave at 7 a.m. I mean, there's not throw nothing, the pillows not in. taking the water in the room. Do you take that, that, the bottle of water with you when you haven't opened it? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that you can that you can use again baked in, right? Yeah. I'm talking about stockpiling it through the course. Like if you take it the next morning and it's a one nighter, fine. I'm talking about, and I know people who will go unnamed because I think that it's criminal activity. Who literally every day take it and be like, "Whoop, there's some soap for when we get home," and "Whoop, there's some soap for when that, we get home." That's no stealing. But by the way, hotels are getting. Wise, I don't know if you remember Ryan, the oh. hotel we stayed in in Denver for the Stanley Cup final. Oh yeah, the the ones they on have the wall. The, huh? They have the, the, the they have the pumps on the wall in the shower now. Where you have to see about the all soap y'all for, criminals out there ruined it all. for the rest of uh, us. Maybe now, maybe maybe your friends that take them all will will bring Tupperware. Uh, I put this question to Twitter. Uh, we thank everybody for their responses. Uh, Cam Cole, who, by the way, uh, weighed in on our quandary last week, says, uh, built into the cost of your room, you're fine. Uh, someone, uh, Steve Delansky, said, the line is it rating the cart. In your room, it's yours to take. You know when you see the cart in the hallway? I know we all think it. You're looking at it like, ooh, there's some stuff on there. But that. That Have you ever taken water stealing. off the cart? Have you ever taken water off the cart, Rye? Have you ever done it? Yeah, I've taken right. water off the cart, but my intention okay. wasn't to stuff it in my bag and then <laughs> hydrate my children when I get home. <laughs> I, I'm telling you, the, the Keurig one, though, I mean, absolutely. It's like 10 bucks. It's like 14 bucks for like, or 
nine of them. It's 12 yeah. of them. So Lori says, <laughs> I just stayed at a hotel on a work trip for $400 for one night, and it was just a regular room. They had the shampoo, et cetera, and dispensers. So I took the coffee pods, shower she cap, pen, paper, pretty much everything else instead. See? Wouldn't normally, but 400 a night? Come That's what on. I'm saying. And then I go, you go into your suitcase when you get home and you put them right where your, you, you know, oh, where your Keurig is. Lori, Lori I'm not going to say your road. last name. That's criminal activity. Okay, here on Got You Back for our quandary segment, we do have an ultimate arbiter. Uh, Terry Ryan is the ultimate arbiter, the voice of reason on all quandary-related items. And here he is. As the ultimate arbiter, I've come to a decision. When it comes to body lotion, conditioner, shampoo, and body wash, I treat the bathroom in a hotel like grandma's cookie jar on my birthday. Yeah! What I can get, and that's usually a lot. With all the things that can possibly go wrong, in a hotel room and often do, like noisy guests, poor Wi-Fi, temperature issues, not enough hot water, bugs, hidden fees, <laughs> pre-continental breakfast featuring cold coffee, a rock hard donut and pulpy orange juice. Like I said, it's the cost of doing business for the hotel. The least they can do is get me a few toiletries for the way home. You know what I'm saying? Final decision. Final decision yes. on our quandary this week from Terry Ryan. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to rethink my life here. I still think you're all a bunch of criminals. Well, Thanks, that's guys. why we're going. That's why they're going to Spencer, though. They're way ahead yeah. of you, Ryan. The hotel exactly. knows what's going on. Yeah. yeah. So next thing, you animals will be tearing the dispensers off the wall, justifying that too. I would just come with your little carry and go and dispense it in there. <laughs> just with fill the lid on. Poundy, enough, <laughs> enough. I would not do it. Enough. All right. That was the breakdown. Thank you guys so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Still lots more to come here on Got Your Back, including straight to the point where we will check in with longtime NHL veteran reporter Scotty Burnside. See you guys. Cheers. Bye. We want to tell you about a truly Canadian company. Cross Country Canada Supplies and Rentals provides equipment and supplies to all facets of the Canadian construction industry. But what sets them apart is their get-or-done attitude. It's a core value of their company. I've been to the offices. I've seen how they proudly display that on the wall at each branch. Every one of the staff members lives by the get-or-done formula to ensure they'll never let their customers down. They'll bend over backwards to get their clientele what they need when they need it. They don't make excuses. Cross Country Canada takes great pride in this attitude and they truly believe that the success of their customer is their success. You can't get much more Canadian than that. Time now for our weekly editorial segment here on Got Your Back, straight to the point. And once again, we turn to veteran NHL scribe Scott Burnside, who gets straight to the point on Hockey Canada's Tuesday meetings with the Canadian Heritage Committee. Here's a little note for Andrea Skinner, the interim board chair of Hockey Canada. Yes, Andrea, the lights in hockey rinks across Canada will in fact stay on, even if you and CEO Scott Smith and the rest of your group take the first exit out of the nearest Hockey Canada building and don't look back. Skinner had the audacity to suggest in answering questions from MPs who are once again trying to get to the bottom of the ongoing scandal rocking Hockey Canada, why the current leadership group remains in place. There have been calls from MPs and from across the hockey spectrum for Skinner and Smith and the rest to depart, to do the right thing and leave. And yet Skinner wondered, well, if we leave, what will happen? Will the lights stay on? Rarely have I encountered people less self-aware than Skinner and Smith. They see themselves not as part of any kind of problem whatsoever but as part of a solution. What I wanted to do today was to talk about the people who can be part of the solution for Hockey Canada, who can help create uh, a new landscape, who can help create a culture that is welcoming and open and invites perspectives, even from those who've been bullied, who've been sexually assaulted, who have had a miserable time of it. Instead of the closed and secretive group that have dominated Hockey Canada for years and years. Skinner and Smith don't seem to see that. 
And yet it seems patently clear that those who could come to the table, who have ideas, who have fresh perspectives, will not come without that change. We, we already know people have been approached. They want nothing to do with this, with current leadership in place with Hockey Canada. So where does the pressure point come from? Does the IIHF have a role in this? It would be nice to see and hear from them on this matter, put some pressure on Hockey Canada to make changes, meaningful changes. Sponsors who've already withheld hundreds of thousands of dollars from Hockey Canada events, perhaps that needs to continue. And what about those local hockey moms and dads, local hockey groups who have unwittingly paid to help pay off the victims of sexual assault and other uh, miscreant behavior over the years? What if they withheld their money from Hockey Canada? The process is clear. It is a difficult one. It is a long road to recovery for Hockey Canada and a new landscape. There is a chance for the lights to stay on, Andrea. The lights only stay on if you and your group are gone. And that's going to do it for episode two of Got Your Back NHL Edition. LeBron and Rashog, thanks so much to Rick Westhead and Cheryl Pounder, Scott Burnside as well for their contributions today. And a big thanks to our sponsors, Cross Country Canada Supplies and Rentals, Pro Hockey Life, and Liberty Smart Security, also a sponsor here on Got Your Back. Uh, hoping to catch up with Florida Panthers head coach Paul Maurice here sometime in the next day or so. So keep an eye on our feed when we execute that interview, we will push it out uh, to the podcast platform. So keep an eye out for that. We appreciate your subscriptions and your downloads to this point, folks. It's going to be a really fun journey this year. Love doing this podcast with Pierre uh, and looking forward to more of it. Check in on our short shift that will go Monday morning. That'll be a look back at the weekend that was. And then episode three will go next Wednesday. Have yourselves an awesome day today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Cheers. Cheers.